This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. It is Fun Friday. My name is Jeff Sandu. Last week's episode of MSP was, hmm, how do we say this? Uh, maybe a little bit depressing, but that's what happens when you let Matt Armitage call the shots. This week, we've asked him to look at the sunny side of science. So Matt, you've changed the name of the segment yet again. So why is science sick and what happened to celebrating science? Well, science is sick. You know, it has that double meaning. Uh Sometimes it's sick as in, oh my God, that's a bit scary. But um, a lot of the time, you know, it's just really, really cool. Um, and of course, celebrating science, well, it does sound a bit like something an old person might say. So you're trying to be a little bit more current? Yeah, you know, I'm quick with the hooks like Balrog. Um, <laughs> what? I thought it was, you know, time to freshen up the yard. Um Stop getting so vexed. Stop looking like a pagan because, you know, I'm just so gassed to be doing these shows. Mm. As regular listeners would know, we punish Matt for trying to be cool with the kids by asking him questions about physics. I'll allow it. Um, <laughs> no, I'm actually quite happy about this one. Um, we had a story, I think, uh, a couple of uh, weeks ago on AMA from Christine and it was mm. about time travel and I was saying that essentially time traveling is probably not going to be possible because of the gravitational forces <laughs> so even if you can get the science right you're just going to be ripped apart however it seems like I spoke too soon mm. so we've all heard of the grandfather paradox in movies right so the idea that if you go back and you kill your grandfather, <laughs> you're not going to, to be born. Mm -hmm. Well, a couple of scientists, uh, Barak Shazani and Jacob Hauser at the Perimeter Institute in Canada. I don't know where I keep finding these sketchy sounding <laughs> science institutes. <laughs> but anyway, they've come up with this idea of um, branching universes, uh, which helps to avoid these paradoxes. Mm -hmm. Now, when we've talked about branching universes before, the idea of branching universes is, you know, you make a choice and then a whole different set of universes come out from every single choice. Mm -hmm. Of course, that requires the idea of infinite universes. Um, but Shozani and Hauser, they've come up with a mathematical model uh, that kind of simplifies this. They don't require an infinite set of universes. They just require a very large number of parallel universes. So far, so well read. So how does that help Christine? Easy, wormholes. <laughs> You're not going to get away with that. You always say wormholes and act like it proves your point. The listeners lit a little bit more. But this time it is actually <laughs> wormholes. And the researchers reckon mm. you just literally need to step off through a wormhole. <laughs> so instead of the usual theory of uh, branching timeliners... Uh, branching timelines, rather, these guys have come up with, as I said, this idea of parallel histories. So I'm actually going to quote from the new scientists here because I don't want to take the entire day to try and explain <laughs> this. Um, let's say we have three men called Bob and a lady called Alice. So this means Bob number one can travel from timeline one to timeline two, and he attempts to kill Alice by releasing a crocodile, because that's what you do to try and kill someone. <laughs> uh, if the crocodile doesn't kill her, mm -hmm. uh, she gets to go on to have grandchildren, and that means Bob two can try again. So he travels to timeline three, 
and he attempts to drop a piano on Alice because mm. obviously these are cartoon characters. But the, the key here is that the Bobs have the ability to change their actions. They're not locked into Bob's, Bob One's failing plan of releasing a crocodile mm. because it's stupid. Um, but if he were to travel within a single timeline, he would have to repeat that act because that's the only way to keep history consistent and eliminate that possibility of a paradox. Isn't that still an infinite set of possibilities? Well, no, because mathematically it assumes that Alice and Bob consist of a finite number of particles. As they're finite, they can only inhabit a finite number of histories in each universe. So it's a very large number, but it's not actually an infinite number. I must say, it does sound rather one-dimensional. And there's a reason for that. It actually only works currently <laughs> in one dimension. Uh, the team is working on transferring it into three dimensions because that's how we view the world, so that's how to make it useful. But they do acknowledge how weird and freaky this is because instead of time traveling you're simply stepping into an alternate timeline um so it's it's not time traveling you're going into an entirely different reality mm. uh, and they make the point you know what would be the point of trying to change anything if you wanted to kill hitler for example you would only be killing hitler in somebody else's reality in your own reality World War II would still have been fought. Hitler mm. would have come to, to power. Um, or, you know, in our case, I wouldn't be able to go back in time and stop Christine asking me <laughs> questions about physics. I would just be able to stop uh, Matt in another reality having to answer those questions. All right. So now I know that I can't alter the histories of any of our listeners. So what else do you want to confuse us with? Well, I'm going to ask you a question. Who are you? Or who do you think you are? Well, I'm, I'm Jeff Sandu. Like, have you lost your memory or something? No, no, no but, but, but who <laughs> or what is Jeff Sandu? Who, who are you? What, what constitutes Jeff? That's a very deep question, Matt. I didn't thought we would go there, but I'm a human entity. I'm, I'm, I'm born here. I'm, I don't know. That's a very deep question. Why are you asking me these questions? Well, no, questions? I'm asking because, <laughs> because whatever you think you are, it's mm. probably just an illusion. Uh, not that it's not true, but, you know, <laughs> we we tend to think of ourselves as being this unified whole, as having this kind of very um, distinct and uh, very visible uh, kind of personality. Mm. Um, we think of ourselves as being the same today as uh, we were yesterday and we'll be the same again tomorrow. But according to Bruce Hood of the University of Bristol and the author of the book, The Self-Illusion, our sense of self is probably exactly that, an illusion. Mm. Um, he says that we are a, a collection of conflicting messages and signals and thought processes. Um, and somehow we bring all of these experiences together and we perceive them as being this unified person. You know, man, I thought today was supposed to be uplifting. Well, it kind of is uplifting <laughs> in a weird way. Look, you know, in neuroscience, we know that our sense of self is a distributed thing. So what we are actually takes place in different parts of the brain and it's actually brought together, it's assembled. But we don't understand that process of assembling things. Mm. So that sense of self and individuality is not one thing. You know, it's something that we develop 
over time. So when you look at small children, they only actually develop that notion of self at around the age of three or four. Before that, they, they don't really have that same perception mm. of individuality um, and of the, themselves as a separate person. So it's only when we reach early adulthood that it completely solidifies? Well, yeah, part of the illusion, according to... Um, hood is that our sense of self is slightly bloated. Now, we all tend to think of ourselves as being better than uh, average in terms of, you know, our sense of humour or our intelligent lev- intelligence levels, etc. You know, in my case, that is absolutely true. But statistically, not everyone can be above average. Mm-hmm. Some people have to be uh, on that level. Some people have to be below. So the irony of the illusion of self, again, according to Hood, is that it may not even be for us at all. Mm. It may be a tool that has allowed us to develop these complex social behaviours because, you know, rather than being um, a mindless ant, rather than having a sort of group mind, it allows us to function as part of a greater society but still have that ability to, to have our own thoughts and to, uh, to make our own decisions and to act individually. So it's not necessarily something that benefits us directly. It benefits society as a whole for us to have this notion of self. No, there seems to be an undercurrent of bafflement in this week's stories, Matt. No, it's fantastic that science has this ability to baffle us, to inspire us, to amaze us. You know, uh, every time someone pronounces that, you know, we've learned everything there is to know Mm. about whatever, we turn a corner and we find that there's an even longer road to knowledge in front of us. Um, Sometimes we observe things that we can't explain. So, for example, uh, NASA's OSIRIS-REx spacecraft, which has been uh, orbiting an asteroid called uh, Bennu since... Uh, December of 2018. Now, analysing that data, we've discovered that Bennu is essentially vomiting rocks, but we have no real idea why. Aren't asteroids considered to be dead bodies? Well, yeah, essentially they're thought to be spent forces. They're thought to be, as you said, dead bodies. They're not supposed to change very much. But Bennu is the first one that we've gotten this close to, Mm. and it's changing our expectations and our predictions, or rather, we're expecting it to be predictable, and it isn't. It's actually quite unpredictable. Mm. What are the current theories for its behaviour? Well, the primary one is that it just raved way too hard. (laughs) That's your contribution, isn't it? Uh, Yeah, I think I may have peaked with the street speak here. Um, Listeners are probably thinking I'm a bit of a waster man. Mm, They're probably wishing you came with a dictionary. Um, Maybe next year uh, when, you know, I come up with the app of me. Because, you know, who says a sense of self is actually an illusion? Delusion in your case? Safe. Look, I know you're just murking. (laughs) MC Matt, what is the asteroid doing? There are lots of theories. So it could be uh, water vapour, essentially melting ice, which is creating pressure and causing rocks to actually pop out. Mm. Uh, It could have been down to impacts with uh, meteors because, you know, Bennu is still ejecting uh, fragments of uh, whether it could be the, the, the meteors or fragments of its own uh, surface. It could even be down to wild fluctuations in temperature because, you know, it's spinning in and out of the the, the the sun's kind of field or whatever. But these temperature fluctuations can create a process called surface stress fracturing. Mm. So essentially, you know, you're just getting cracks and stuff's uh, coming off. But whatever it is, 
we're still learning and that's the really cool thing about all of this uh, science and exploration all right when we come back ready to wear exoskeletons and we try to get to the bottom of matt's obsession with street slang what were you thinking bfm 89.9 beyond frivolous matters bfm 89.9 the business station Welcome back to Fun Friday. When Matt talks about sick science, he isn't joking. We've already been down a wormhole and confronted with the illusion of identity. And it isn't even lunchtime yet. So Matt, let's play it safe and head to space. Do we know anything more about the sun than we know about asteroids? Well, I mean, asteroids and the sun, they're both things that are really hard to get very close to. So, Mm, you know, mm. there is a lot of theorizing and supposition. Uh, So... You know, with the sun, just like with Bennu, the closer we get um, to the actual physical body, the the more our expectations are actually turned upside down. And, of course, the sun is the only star that we can realistically observe up close. So, again, NASA's Parker uh, Solar Probe um, made the closest ever flyby of the sun. This was back in August uh, of uh, this year. Mm. Uh, It got within, I think, 15 million miles. Uh, And according to the Futurism website, it is actually the fastest man-made object of all time. Uh, If it happened in August, I'm assuming they've only just finished crunching the data and released some of it. Uh, Yeah, um, there was a recent report in the journal Nature, um, and the results of this may actually change the way that we think uh, stars are born and live and actually evolve. Um, It may even give us useful information to protect astronauts and human colonists as we embark on these kind of long-term space uh, missions that are currently being planned and contemplated. Um, But it seems to be that the most confounding discovery from the the data so far is that the magnetic fields that come from the sun unexpectedly flip backwards and forwards Mm. in what the scientists are terming switchbacks. Now, we don't know why, um, but understanding why, getting to an understanding of this could allow us to understand how energy actually flows away from the sun and moves throughout the solar system. Uh, So uh, Justin Casper, who's the principal uh, investigator at the University of Michigan, this one sounds like a real (laughs) university, um, but he says that, you know, waves have been seen in the solar wind um, for as long as we've been kind of observing these things, the space age. Uh, But we assume that the closer to the sun the waves uh, that we get, the waves would get stronger. Mm. But we're not actually expecting to see them organise in the way that they have. They have these very kind of coherent structures and we're seeing these these velocity spikes. Mm. There's something about cosmic dust as well, isn't there? Uh, Yeah, not really a normal topic for us, cosmic (laughs) dust. Um, But the sun's radiation essentially creates a cosmic dust exclusion zone around the star. Uh, It just simply vaporizes it, but over a vast distance, I think something like um, three and a half million miles, there's this this area around the sun where it simply vaporizes any dust that that comes anywhere near. And these aren't the only surprises. Uh, The solar winds that we know rotate around the sun, they're actually uh, rotating nearly 10 times faster uh, than most of our models have predicted. Uh, And also, for the first time, we can actually see the solar winds rotating around the star because 
usually we just view them as they branch out and, mm. and head towards us. So now this is where we're getting this kind of data and, and we can see where our models have been going wrong. We should get even more data in a few weeks' time. Mm -hmm. The probe is scheduled for another pass in uh, late January when it's hoped it's going to get even closer. I don't know how close it can go without melting, but anyway. Mm. But as I said at the start of this story, you know, the this additional information plus the experience of the probe itself in getting so close to the, the, the sun, it's giving us incredible insights into how spacecraft and personnel can survive the extremes of solar weather and radiation on all of these long-distance space missions and colonizing projects that we're planning. It wouldn't be a celebration of science without some kind of brain chip. So what have you got for us? I do. I have a brain chip for you. Mm -hmm. um, I have a, a chip that actually replicates uh, the, the neurons um, from damaged nerves. Oh. So uh, this is from a story on technology review, which in turn is taken from a paper in the journal Nature Communications. Now, an obvious example of this kind of chip would be helping people who are experiencing the effects of paralysis. So it's hoped that the circuits of artificial neurons could actually replicate the healthy function of failing or damaged nerve cells and pass on uh, electrical messages between different parts of the, the body. Uh, another example they give is heart failure. You know, when someone's heart fails, the neurons mm. in the brain don't respond properly to the feedback from the nervous system. And the result is that the heart doesn't pump as hard as it should. So using a chip like this, we can actually reverse those faulty signals. Uh, a chip containing uh, these artificial neurons could transmit the right signal uh, from the heart back to the brain and allow it to actually get back on track. So you don't need any uh, surgical intervention. Mm. It doesn't actually create that kind of long-term damage as well if you can get to it early enough and the person is able to carry on much as they would have done normally. How would they be powered though? Uh, well, I mean, it's a bit like the uh, the Matrix. You'd need living creatures and you'd have to draw the, the, the power for them. So you could keep them, I don't know, in a little bag by your side. Um, no, obviously that that's a joke, hopefully. Um, no, they're very, very low power chips. Mm. They use about one billionth the power of a standard microprocessor. So in theory, you could potentially power them yourself with the, the body's own electrical mm. impulses, but most likely you'd kind of pig back on the batteries in standard implants. Uh, researchers are now developing uh, smart pacemakers that have these chips embedded into them. And so far, tests, um, only with animals so far, not with people, have uh, showed that this approach is more effective than just using a standard pacemaker mm. because, you know, you're not just using the machine to correct, you're actually replicating or replacing the biological processes mm. that are missing as well. Unfortunately, um, don't hold your breath for this. It could be, um, well, literally, don't hold your breath, especially if you have heart <laughs> problems. Yeah. Um, it could be a while before we see this being used in human patients. There are human trials, clinical trials still to, to go through. So this is still mm. very much um, an experimental model at the, at the moment. But there are other ways to extend people's lives, aren't there? Yeah, um, if you freeze them just after they're born, they can live forever. Um, yeah. Again, joking. Um, but, you know, I wouldn't be surprised. You know that story we mentioned last week, the, the guys planning their 1,000-year mm, space mm. mission? 
I wouldn't be surprised if they're looking into crazy ideas like that, frozen embryos and all that uh, that kind of stuff. Um, but actually, no, we, we're talking about extending people's lives with exoskeletons. Mechanical implants. Um, well, you know, that's kind of a trope that we use <laughs> on the show quite often, this idea of uh, human enhancement and replacing limbs with mechanical implants. So a bit like that movie with uh, Matt Damon, uh, Elysium. Um, or even, you know, the, the mechanical suit in the kind of real world, the mechanical suit we saw at the Brazil Olympics. Mm. There are systems like Rewalk, which are helping um, uh, paraplegics to walk. But there are less invasive and more accessible machines being pioneered in Japan at the moment. A variety of manufacturers are making assistive devices that will allow Japanese people to work for longer. That sounds a little cruel and dystopian. Uh, well, it's not actually an economic slavery thing. You know, um, <laughs> Japan has this aging population. It has a low birth mm. rate. Uh, An incredible 28% of its citizens are actually over the age of yeah. 65. Uh, and younger people, of course, all want to be barristers and CEOs, <laughs> often at the same time. Uh, so the country is, you know, looking to raise the retirement age to mm. 70. Mm. Uh, it especially has a shortage of uh, workers for manual industries like construction and farming. Uh, and it has a glut of older people who want to continue to feel valued and useful. So a lot of manufacturers are actually producing these uh, devices. And one of the leaders in the field is a company called InnoFiz. The Every Muscle Suit. Yeah, that's the name. Um, it's actually a <laughs> pneumatic device and it's worn like a backpack and it weighs mm. less than four kilograms grams and it's one of those great high-tech low-tech ideas mm. it doesn't have heavy batteries because you just fill the artificial muscles with a hand pump hand pump like mm. i said it's it's pneumatic and then it actually gives you about 25 kilos worth of assistance in lifting wow. which is pretty substantial mm. um Innocess is uh uh, Inosis rather is marketing this model for around 1300 US dollars. Mm. Uh, Panasonic is working on a, a powered suit that uses uh, batteries um, and gives a lift assistance of about 10 kilos and costs around $5,500. That doesn't seem to work to no, me if no. you can have a pneumatic <laughs> one that is better and much cheaper. Um, but it's not just big companies who are using these devices. Um, they're being used by people, for example, who are caring for an elderly spouse or relatives at home, so it can help to lift them in and out of bed or bath or whatever. Um, small business owners and artisans are using them to allow them to carry on working because, you know, we hear that, you know, you've got an artisan noodle maker, but his son doesn't want to carry on the tradition and the artisan doesn't want to give it up. So he's carrying on into mm. his 70s or 80s or whatever. So this is a, a way of allowing those people to carry on doing the thing they love without the kind of wear and tear on them uh, physically. Are you saying that the future is old? Well, you know, we have this huge imbalance. Um, in the developed world, uh, populations are ageing. Uh, in much of the developing world, populations are increasingly kind of tilted towards those under 30. So the obvious solution is to mix those two demographics. But as we've seen, immigration is not a particularly popular <laughs> topic right now. Um, but yeah, you know, we have this idea that old people should just sit around in chairs staring out of windows until, you know, death eventually comes and takes them peacefully in their sleep. Um, 
in the same way that we shouldn't underestimate what young people are capable of doing, we shouldn't write off uh, old people either. You know, neuronal implants aside, we all have the, the same brains. Uh, let's end with something unbelievable, Matt. Okay, for the first time, plants have been recorded making airborne sounds when they're stressed. So uh, a guy called Itzhak Kite and his uh, colleagues at Tel Aviv University in Israel mm. found that tomato and tobacco plants <laughs> made sounds at frequencies that humans cannot hear when they're stressed by uh, a lack of water mm. or when their stem is cut. Now, <laughs> microphones that were placed, <laughs> I know, placed 10 centimetres from the plants picked up sounds in the ultrasonic range of 20 to 100 kilohertz. The team says insects and some mammals would be capable of hearing and responding uh, to those sounds from as far as five metres away. So it could serve um, uh, as a signal as well to other mm. plants that in this particular patch you will be short of water. Because they, um, they can move to a different... Well, no, 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 but, you know, it can... It can uh, you know, we know that some plants can yeah, stay yeah, dormant yeah, yeah, for you, yeah, so yeah. maybe it's just telling it, hey, don't bother to uh, to sprout right now. Or, for example, with an insect, a moth mm, might mm. decide against laying its eggs on a plant that sounds... Uh, water stressed. Mm, I, I, you know, I feel I feel a little bit sad for laughing because, you know, they are squealing when you're kind of I, like... I know. It's just weird, isn't it? Anyways, aside from being moderately mind-bending, how can we harness this power? Well, apparently it's like an early warning system for farmers. Um, It tells them that plants need more water um, and it allows for much more efficient and targeted uh, agricultural production methods um, because, you know, you don't have to overwater, you can give them the exact amount they need. The next thing we have to do is figure out if a wider spectrum of plants uh, are making these uh, noises, uh, whether they relate just to uh, water depletion or if other mineral saturation or depletion could stimulate those uh, those sounds as well. And of course, uh, whether the supposition that insects and mammals can hear the screams is true because, you know, we don't know at the moment. And we have to identify exactly how those sounds might change the behavior of those creatures. So, you know, go tenderly with those houseplants. Mm-hmm. Uh, they may be telling tales on you to other plants <laughs> at, the, uh, at the garden store. So I think all that's really left for me to say is bup. <laughs> that is Matt talking about how science is sick. Not as in sick in fever, but sick as in cool. I don't know. Uh, we'll be right back with Geek Squawks after this. BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.